welcome to Top of Mind, the show where we talk to real estate industry insiders and experts about the biggest trends impacting the market today. Enjoy the show. Mike Simonson here. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the Top of Mind podcast. This is where I talk to the smartest leaders, thinkers, doers in the real estate industry. For, for a few years now, we've been sharing the latest market data every week in our in our Altos Research weekly video series. With the, with the Top of Mind podcast, we're looking to add some context to the discussion about what's happening in the market from the, the leaders in the industry. Each week, Altos Research tracks every home for sale in the country. We track all the pricing, supply and demand. We do all those analytics, all those changes in that data. And we make it available to you before you see it in the traditional channels. People desperately need to know what's happening in the housing market right now. It's been so crazy, so hot in the beginning part of the year that it cooled so fast, like, and the landscape is maybe suddenly changing again. So, you know, people ask me, Mike, can I get the data for my local market? The answer is yes. Go to altosresearch.com, book a free consultation with our team. You can look at their local data. And we can talk about using market data in your business. So. Without further ado, though, I am happy to introduce my guest today, Jay Parsons. Jay is the VP and Head of Economics and Industry Principles at RealPage, where he analyzes the rental housing market and renters. Jay is a frequent author and speaker on topics such as rental housing investment and asset management strategy, rental housing policy, risk management, property management. Jay's all over the media, Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg and CNBC because it's got such strong and, and deep insights into the rental market. So I'm looking forward to this interview. You know, we've, we touch, we have touched on rents and the changes in rents and the rental market in these conversations we've been having over the last year, but there's a lot of depth here and there's some real important factors that rent is rents and the changes in rents are contributing to the overall market message for housing right now. So Jay, Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Mike. Looking forward to it. All right. Let's start out with, for those who aren't familiar with RealPage, give us a quick overview of the company and your role there. Sure. Yeah. RealPage is a software platform, a prop tech for property management and property ownership, primarily in rental housing. And so we have millions of units running across our platform in various ways. And so great thing on my job is that because there's all this data flowing around, we are harvesting that data and then using the aggregate data for research and market trends and, and of course, in forecasting and whatnot. And so it gives us a lot of great visibility into some real-time rent roll trends beyond just what we see in the tra tra traditional asking rent. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah, that's, that's super cool. And so you have single family homes and apartments on the platform. Is that yes. true? Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's 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 mo mostly I would say a, a much larger share of the apartment market. Although uh, we do the single family market, as you know, rental market, you know as well as anybody, is very fragmented. But our market share in multifamily is quite large, and we're have a growing single family group as well. That's great. And so super. So that's like that's like lease management and advertisement, all those kinds of things that that big property management managers need to do. Yes, everything from your core party management, your leasing operations, marketing, pricing of units, you know, the spend management, screen resident screening services, renters insurance, all, all types of 
all oh. types of stuff, payments uh, that goes through uh, the RealPage platform. Got it. So, so let's start there then. Like, what do we know? It's we're recording this now near the end of September. Uh, what do we know about rents across the country right now? Yeah, you know, the, the word that I've been using a lot is is normalizing. And, you know, and as we're here, you know, kind of, see, I think 2020, 2022 has been a year of normalization following what we're, I don't think, I don't have to explain this thing, but everybody knows 2020 and 2021 were just crazy years. And so, you know, when you look at kind of the real time month over month trends, it's, it's really kind of back to normal. I mean, August, for instance, we had about 0.4% rent growth month over month. And that's pretty typical for August versus August 2021 was closer to 2% month over month, which is, which is a huge number for just a one month jump. Now, you know, I know we'll get more into this. Now, what does that mean really going forward? There's obviously a lot of question marks right now about the path ahead, but, you know, all in all, you know, you look at overall leasing and uh, demand and rents, it's, it's really been a much more normal year after two crazy years. Got it. So, so rents, so rents climbed a little bit in August, which is seasonally normal. Yep. There's some, there's a lot of moving and, you know, people like moving into the best properties at that point and things like that. Is that, is that how we look at August? Like there's a lot of activity at that time? Yeah. August is, 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 is really the end of the leasing season. And so okay. you think about, you know, for, for rental housing, your key season, your leasing season really starts in March. It's probably not that I'm not an expert in the for sale housing market. It's probably pretty similar, you know, yep. starts around March. And then by, by the time school even though most apartment residents in particular are not going to school or have kids in school, you know, it really does follow that school year. So once you get into August and September, especially, you know, late August, things start to slow down. In the winter months, of course, very few people are moving. And you, so when we track, we track, you know, prices of homes, we can see a real strong seasonal on pricing. So, yeah. you know, we actually see pricing pull back in, you know, October, November, December. Do, do you see that same pattern, seasonal curve in rents? Absolutely. Rents and demand. In fact, one of the things I'm a little worried about is in 2020, 2021, the post-COVID era, we really saw what I would call like a de-seasonality effect because of the craziness of the pandemic, the work from home movement, you know, working from anywhere, moving around. And so I think this will be the first year that we see seasonality return, which could mean some, you know, negative absorption, negative demand, and also negative rents. But you know, if, the, if those numbers are mild, I think that's actually a, a good sign of a healthy market. That's what typically happens. There's slightly negative absorption, slightly negative rent cuts to stimulate a little bit of demand in the slow months. And so if that happens, I would, I hope people avoid sort of a panic view just because, you know, everybody remembers kind of the short term, our, our memories can be kind of short, but as long as you don't see big cuts, you know, that would actually be a pretty good sign. Yeah. Okay. So that, so in that way, it, it mirrors exactly the, the, for sale market, the de-seasonality that happened. Yeah. And it actually, uh, I've got all kinds of questions to come to about like what, what we're seeing right now, but but it, it, this brings up a, a thing that, that comes up from time to time. And I wonder if you have a take on it, which is, and I was talking with a reporter recently who was asking about, you know, trends and, and purchase trends. And, and she was sort of assuming that there is a a trade-off that it's their substitute so that if mm -hmm. if demand for homes falls to buy rents would increase and vice versa and and so people more people are moving to buy homes than rents would d 
decrease. We haven't observed, I don't have, have never observed, I've actually observed them both moving in tandem. So like, yeah. it's like household formation that is, that's happening. And so people are either, they're buying and they're renting at the same time. And that, so, you know, during COVID, same thing, de-seasonality happened, like people were doing everything, they were moving out, they were buying, they were renting. We were in, we were in growth mode. Do you over time have a view on that? Like, is that, does that jive with your view? Absolutely. I mean, you and I think alike, you know, you're right. It's, it's a rising tide boosts all ships effect. And, you know, the only time we really didn't see that historically was during the foreclosure crisis and the GFC. And in the early stages of the economic recovery that began in 2010, we did see rental demand come back very quickly and not just from, you know, at the time I remember everybody was saying, you probably remember this, it's like everybody got foreclosed upon going out to rent. It really was more of a household formation story among what at the time was young adult millennials going out and at the, you know, at that point running apartments. And of course we saw some single family rental demand as well. But, you know, that other than that very kind of weird period, which I would say was, you know, obviously there was some structural problems with the for sale housing market at the time that had nothing to do with actual demand, you know, or household formation, I should say. We typically see them behaving in tandem. And I think right now what is happening, my view is that we're seeing mod slowing demand for all types of housing. And I think, you know, people ask the question a lot is, hey, are rising rates impacting rental demand? And it's not so much a direct impact so much as that as homes get more expensive, as rates go up, as as inflation is, is roaring, you know, that impacts, I think, overall consumer sentiment, consumer confidence. And you think about it, if you don't feel secure in the economy or in your situation, or you worry about buying at the peak, renting at peak rents, your natural reaction is to wait and see. I'm going to wait it out. I'm going to, you know, ride it out. And so I think that's what we're seeing right now is just is just a lot of uncertainty, and that's leading to kind of a uh, not a total freeze, but a, but definitely a slowdown in demand. Yeah, that's that's exactly the way I view it. It's the the that uncertainty is it actually undermines under underestimates like how much cash there is out there. Like I'm just going to hold on to my cash yeah. and wait. That's yeah. interesting. So the the 2010 recovery. So you guys could see in 2010, you could see signals of apartment recovery early yeah. in 2010. Is that right? You could see that in there. Yeah, 2010 was a big year for apartment demand. It took a while for rents to get back up after some pretty big cuts, but no, it it it, it surged up, and a lot of that was you know at the time. You know, it's funny, we think about millennials are now like the home buyer generation. Well, back in 2010, you know, they were all in their early to mid 20s and, you know, and they were out going out and renting their first apartments and they yeah. didn't want to be in the roommate, didn't want to be mom and dad anymore. And so that was a big tidal wave at the time that really boosted the apartment market. That's fascinating because in the Altos data, one of the things that we watched in 2010 was there was a, the 2009, there was a first time home buyer tax credit and it expired April of 2010. Hmm. And what happened was it pulled demand, purchase demand forward into the first quarter. Ah. And so the second part of 2010 looked like there's no housing demand, but there actually was because it had pulled forward. And, and then what we were able to watch in, in 2011 was we could watch the, the demand. Now there's absent any incentive now we could watch january 2011 demand for home purchases start fresh for the year and so it was like mirroring that and it's really wow. that's a full year before the 
the the traditional measures, you know, right. the Case Shiller types yeah. were were registering it. Were like they were January 2012, but you can really see it already in January 2011. It, it, meanwhile, the headlines were all were all mm. still super Armageddon, right? Uh, things are crashing again, and it was is really fascinating because they were still looking at you know at, at the end of 20. 2010. So it's neat to to know that you were able to really track that as a as a boom year. Yeah, and that's, I wonder that's fascinating about you just said about 2010 as well, the four cell housing. I did not know that. And actually it makes the, the it makes the theory both have around the relationship even more powerful that you saw that even then as well. Yeah, they're like they're like precisely tied to each other. Yeah. That's really fascinating. And it's gonna be fascinating to see like next, like next January. You know what? What is? What are people doing? Are we? Are we even more afraid of a of a recession hitting? Are we? Or are we? Are we past that? Or like, where is the demand next January? Is a really pivotal time in my view. Like, I'm looking forward to seeing how the market responds in that moment. It will be oh, it'll be fun to to visit yeah. both of the stats at the same time. I completely agree, and I. You know, the, the hard thing about where we are right now is we're going into these seasonally slow months that everyone's going to read into way too much. But I'm with you. I think we really aren't going to know. I, I've been kind of saying March for rentals, but maybe it'll be earlier. But like, I think we don't we don't we don't really know the situation until the normal leasing season or, or buying season starts up again. That, that's the part that's a little bit frustrating. because Yeah, you know, right. There's there's all <laughs> kinds of conjecture. There's all kinds of like, oh, well, people, they're going to be you know, the economy is going to tank or the, you know, the yield curves inverted. So these things are going to happen, but they haven't happened yet. And there's a lot of variables in the world. And it's going to be really fascinating to see what, what, how the year shapes up. Yeah, that's really cool. Do you have in your data, any leading indicators that you look at or like forecasting things that, yeah. that, that you lean on? Yeah, there's a few things we look at. One of those is we look at leasing traffic. So we can look at the number of people who visit a property and a visit could be a virtual visit. It could be an in-person visit. It could be a phone call. It could be a chat on the website, things like that. And, and you know, those numbers are below where they were not only last year, but also, you know, we had expected to see numbers more like 2019 and they're a little bit below that as well. So that's yeah. been, they're not off the cliff, but I, I wouldn't say they're like depressionary, like, you know, recessionary bad, but they're not that strong. And the other things we look at, things like retention rates, which are still high, but they are trending down. They're much higher than pre-COVID, but they are trending back down. You know, those- This is like renewal on my lease? Yes. People, percentage of people who renew an expiring lease. And so, you know, we can look at some of those things as early indicators, as well as some of the, you know, kind of the real-time pricing changes as well. All right. That's really, really interesting stuff. Okay. So, um, uh, do you, so how far did those leading indicators fall before you start to worry? Right. Well, like for like, yeah, you know, like worry for your customers revenue and, you know, those kind of things like housing economy in general. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, in, in hindsight, so if I go back a little bit, like we first started to see the traffic number. So, in, so I'll let me go back a little bit. Q1 of this year, we go we go into the year expecting to see numbers that look more like 2019 and 2021. That was our base view. We thought we we're going to see still big rent growth, upper single digits, but moderating traffic and demand. You know, occupancy comes down a little bit, still is high. 
But then Q1 happens and Q1 was still off the charts really good. It's a seasonally slow period, but it was really strong. And so in hindsight, our, our mistake was we took that as a too big of a sign for what was going to happen the rest of the year. And so it did start to slow down in the second half of Q2, like May, June timeframe, when you really started to usually see a big ramp up, it didn't happen. And so at that point, I was like, all right, did we pull forward some demand into the winter months? We've seen this seasonality effect. And so we kind of went back to the, hey, it's that normalization. This is what, you know, I think we got a little ahead of our skis a little bit in the first quarter. And then, and then it was really like, hey, look at not your year over year comparison. Everybody in rental housing, you know, because it's operations, you're looking at this year versus last year. And so I was telling our, you know, our customers, hey, don't look at last year as a comparison point. It's an unfair comparison. It's not a, it's not a realistic one. Look at 2019, look at 2018. And, you know, as we get more into the summer and now into the fall, you know, I think the tone has changed a little bit where, you know, it's still normalizing. I think it's been good, but it's more, I would say, just cautionary as well because of the big drops in consumer sentiment, because of what's going on with inflation and the for sale housing market. I always tell people in, in rental housing, we should be cheering on a strong for sale housing market because there's a lot of, of, of good impacts to the economy that come whether it's correlated or caused or whatever, there's we uh, rentals do well when for sale market does well. And so all of these things happening has certainly created some cloudiness in the market. So the tone has definitely changed a little bit, but still generally positive, but it's more yellow flag right now. Got it. Yeah, yeah. The uh, Do you have views on on supply? So in, in the for sale side, you know, we have this crisis of shortage of inventory available inventory. And that's both because we haven't been building very much for the last 15 years, but also because uh, Americans more and more are keeping their homes for investment and and renting them. And, you know, we can see by some measures, probably 8 million single family homes have switched from for sale to, to rental over the last whatever decade or 12 years or so. Do you have view of that? Like, is it so it feels like a shortage on on for sale side. What does it does it does it parallel on on the rental side? Yeah, no, it, it does, and there are different trends. Obviously, we've we've uh, as a percent of inventory, we obviously built a lot more, particularly multifamily rentals, than we have you know you know built single family homes, especially for sale. But you know even you know the build to rent single family home phenomenon. I mean, well while it's gone from zero to sixty, it's still kind of a drop in the bucket right now in the big picture. So, but to really answer your question, I think that the the greatest challenge is in, in probably of all types of housing is the mismatch between the, the, where the, the, the what's being built and where the bulk of the demand really is. And so there's frankly a lot more demand for, for high rent luxury rental housing from six figure households than we ever would have anticipated. That's a great sign because it means they're not living in cheaper apartments and homes that are better suited for somebody with lesser income. But at the same time, you know, I'm sure everyone's seen those headlines about how we're, you know, four or six million units undersupplied, you know, and that's true. But I, but the bulk of that is really, you know, low and mid-income rental supply, and that's yeah, the type of stuff that's very difficult for the private market to build without public assistance. So, in your view, we are we have been underbuilding on the rental side as well. Yes. Yeah. In short, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, yeah. and and that really impacts the lower income side of, of the equation most. 
Yeah, it's, I mean, we've seen this tightness all across the market. I mean, but it's, it's, it's most pronounced at the lower tier of the market for sure. Yeah. That's so fascinating. Um, and uh, policy wise, do you see ways to get out of that? Do you see yeah, anybody I, doing it right? Yeah, no, it's a great topic. And, you know, I'll tell you, I, I love the topic of housing policy because it's not your typical kind of red and blue party line, you know, kind of stuff. Like, Welcome to our things, geeky little corner of the Internet. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's 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 much more of a like a fair debate. You know, it's not we're not in our camps. And yeah. And, you know, you see that, especially on Twitter, it's like the Yimbies and the NIMBYs, like, and they cross party lines, both groups. And I love it, you know, because yeah. it just makes it much more unpredictable, but also fun. And so I'll give you an example, you know, you know, on the on the policy side, you know, you have, you know, all three, uh, you have the Senate and the House and the White House all controlled by the Democrats. And you have a Democratic White House that proposed infrastructure plan that includes billions for housing creation, particularly affordable housing creation, and the House and the Senate still can't pass it. And, uh, and it's, 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 it's really unfortunate. I mean, that well, at the end of the day is there's been, we're in an era where the focus is on tenant protections, rent control, eviction moratoria, things like this. You know, and regardless of review on these topics, they don't actually create any supply. And that's the big problem. And I think a lot of times I have to explain to people, it's, hey, like, no matter what you're doing on those issues, you need to know that you're not actually you're you're putting band-aids on a problem. You're not actually addressing the root issue, which is you need more supply. So that's funding affordable housing. And that could be through public-private partnerships, such as a low-income housing tax credit program. It could be, you know, expanded voucher programs, rental assistance programs. There's lots of ways to do it. But at the end of the day is, you know, we need more of it. And the only way to do it is with some, you know, public financing or or tax credits that can make it financially feasible for the private sector to achieve it. Yeah. And, and that's a, that's a great point. It's, it's really fascinating. And I think about that policy where you say, you know, we're in a protection mode, whether it's eviction moratorium or, you know, forbearance, like, and all of the laws in the country, all the policy is designed to protect the person already in the yeah. space. Yes. And, and that is to the detriment of the people that don't have one yet. You're right. Now, there was a great study done by an economist at Stanford that studied rent control in San Francisco pre-COVID. And what she basically determined that is that rent control in particular was a tremendous benefit to those who are already in place, but came at a tremendous cost to a far greater number of future renters and everybody who moved in, and especially to low-income renters, because everything that's built is now super, super expensive, catering to high-income households. And that all, and the, those who are occupying lower rent households, lower rent units, are are now incentivized to never move. And so, if you have a low or moderate income, and we see the issue now, there's shortages for you know they can't get teachers to be able to live in the city, firefighters and police officers, you know it, it block it has a blockout effect. And so again, at the end of the day, is you know one of my concerns in these topics is that I think it gives local policymakers a false sense of achievement. It's like oh you know we've solved this problem. And it's like Matt. No, you haven't. You got to yeah. build supply. Like, you know, the more supply you build, the less relevant these other issues even are. Yeah. And, and, oh yeah, I live in the middle of San Francisco. So like, I, yeah. like I, I live in that policy every day. I mean, I have a rent control department. 
you know, yeah. and, and it's, it's amazing. It, and, and it is, you know, in the state of California also has at the, on the for sale side, Prop 13, which keeps property taxes artificially low. So we have essentially rent control for every homeowner in California as well. So you never, you never move, you never sell that house either. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's like nuts. And in fact, here's, you know, we're in this mode where everybody in the country has a 3% or cheaper mortgage. And now with mortgages at six and a half per six or six and a half percent, now we have a rent control for every homeowner. Yeah. <laughs> and we're in the same boat for everyone in the country. And it's kind of scary. Yeah. No, I, I, I was just reading some of the debates about the, the, the lockout effect of, of rates. And I, I'm, I'm certainly not an expert on that topic, but it's pretty interesting to say, think about that, the impact that people who just won't move because of the, you know, their next mortgage rate could be two or three times what they're coming out of. Yeah. Have you, are there any communities where you've seen smart housing policy being built, being implemented? Yeah. So I, yes, but it's on a small scale. And so for example, like what I have seen is, is, you know, so I'm, I'm in Dallas and, and then in Dallas area, we've seen the city has actually invested in buying apartment buildings. They bought a hotel, they converted into affordable housing and, and they're, they're trying to actually fund a solution because again, you know, I think what, you know, they've sort of realized is, Hey, you know, we got to create supply or incentivize the the private market to do it. And so those have been effective, just, just directly investing in and creating public par private partnerships to manage it with rents at a certain level that are, that are locked in. The other things that are effective that have been proposed, we just don't see a lot because cities are reluctant to do it. You know, cities own a lot of land. And so there's been a big push by housing advocates to say, hey, look, land is super expensive. If you can, you know, deed over land in exchange for housing to be built at lower, you know, a lower price point, you know, and that, you know, kind of be locked in, that that's a win-win. Regulatory fees are the same thing. So there's a lot of creative, we've seen in California, like ADUs. You know, the, the problem, though, is that all of these things are incremental. They're all very positive. Like, like I know, you know, you mean California. It's like I, I talk to California media and they love they always want ADUs. I'm like, they're great. And so is buying an apartment building in Dallas. Great. But it's like it's all incremental. And I think at the end of the day is we need to we need some big things, too. That's why I think something like the White House infrastructure plan, 200, 300 billion dollars, you know, that, that that's going to move the needle a lot faster than these excellent but small incremental programs. That's interesting. I haven't haven't paid attention to that infrastructure plan at all. Is there some stuff for affordable housing in there? Yeah. So basically, the you know the campaign slogan is now like housing is infrastructure, which you know personally I think makes sense. But yeah, there's uh, depending on I don't remember the latest version, but somewhere between two hundred and three hundred billion dollars that would fund new construction of affordable housing and also maintenance of existing public, uh, affordable housing that is uh, right now lacks sufficient funding to kind of modernize. Really, that's, that is exciting. It, and it feels like there is starting to be some recognition of good policy. There is a lot yeah. of momentum. I, I, you know, I love a lot of things about California, but the housing policy is, you know, still stuck in the 1970s and it's, and it's like impossible to move that battleship, man. It's oh, yeah. really crazy. So on that side, so now we, let's say we, we get some big, you know, progress and we get some, we get some good construction growth. What happens like when demographically, 
you know, over the next decade with those needs and 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 what shifts there? Are you, have you looked? Do you look that far out in the future? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you know, Mike. I'm sure you know this as well as I do. I mean, demographics are the easiest thing to forecast in housing, and that makes it. You know, it's much. We don't always know what's going to happen in the economy. We can always guess, but you know, demographics. It's pretty much you know births and deaths and birthdays, and uh, and so you know the good news I think for all types of housing is, you know, we're entering a decade where, and I starting a decade, really, we've seen this last few years, that is very positive for all types of housing. And in the sense that you have the millennials that are much larger than the Gen X population that are now entering, you know, early 40s and 30s, late 30s at the, t- at the top end. But right behind them, you have the Gen Z population, which is just as big or slightly bigger. And so as millennials move out of an apartment and move into a single family rental or for sale home, they're being backfilled by that demand. And, and the reason that's important is when you go back to the 90s, the 90s was a lull period for rental housing and especially apartments, because you had this huge building period for the baby boomers in the 70s and through the mid 80s. And then you had the baby bust, which is the Xers. And they were like half the size of the boomers. And all of a sudden, there was just limited number of people in that key demographic, especially for apartments, which cater to those in their 20s to, to early to mid 30s. And so we just don't have to worry about that anymore. And so we're going to the growth rate obviously slows down. A lot of people make a big deal about this, but it's still going up and the, the overall population. And I think that's a a good thing. And the second part about that as well is that, you know, there's also, which we get into more is sort of the where people want to live versus where the housing, old housing is right now. And I think that the, the, the Twitter mafia gets twisted up over that topic. But, uh, you know, all in all, I think the demographic tailwinds are very positive for every type of housing for the next decade. Yeah, yeah. Gen X, like smack in the middle of Gen X right yeah. here. And, you know, it's the, it is, you know, watching the millennials hit their peak home buying years, they moved from renting to peak home buying years, driving a ton of the demand of the last yes. few years and the next few years. And, you know, frankly, 2008, like that's when Gen X was in that yep. in that period and there's fewer of us. And and it like, it makes a lot of sense there. So, so you're broadly yeah, and, optimistic. And, and Mike, real quick, I think, you know, that's a point. I've never had the time to really study this. I'm, I'm not a forest housing expert, but it's like, I think, I wonder if that's not kind of one of these big kind of lesser told realities of the 2008 period as well as the for sale housing market, just having what the apartment market dealt with in the 1990s in terms of demographics. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think so. It was obviously, you know, it was like, it was probably like the marginal demand dropped because the the peak home buying year people dropped like, and that marginal, yeah. that marginal demand can have a huge impact on on all kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. So you're you're broadly optimistic about the next decade or so demand-wise because of demographics. Absolutely. I mean, demographics I think are very favorable. At the end of the day, people need a place to live. I mean, like COVID taught us this, right? I mean, you can work from anywhere, you can order food from anywhere, you know, you can buy, you know, go to a store that sends stuff to you anywhere, buy from anywhere, but you got to have somewhere to live. And uh, and so I think that's a good reason to be, you know, everything, you know, I, I tell people all the time, you know, supply is structural, demand is cyclical. I mean, demand's going to go up and down a little bit, but long-term, you know, I think housing is a good thing to bet on. Yeah. That actually brings up a, a, a really fascinating point that I've been talking with a lot of my guests about is work from home. And do you have a views on work on like, you know, the trend and B, do you have any specific data that might 
that that you might share like insights that you think you have on the world about of how we are how that's changing Do yeah you have anything on there so yeah we're getting there so one of the things that you know we're able to track are things like employers from lease applications but the problem is that we don't, it doesn't directly, in, in the pre-work from home era, it didn't really matter. Now that you have a large number of people working from home, we're really more interested to know where they're working, right? And so we have not yet fully solved that. But I'll tell you, what's really surprised me is that, is not that people are working from home a lot, but what, what one of the things that we saw that's been very encouraging is the, even in the big cities, you know, whether it's New York or, or even a downtown, like in down, uptown, downtown Dallas, like where I am, uh, or our area, you know, people are still wanting, especially young people, they're, they're choosing to live in the city, even if they don't go to work, they're, they're, they're fine living in a, a downtown apartment. Yeah, uh, They want to do that for the lifestyle, though. And, and I think that was in hindsight was really interesting is there's so much focus in the early stages of the recovery about the return to office and the impact that can have on the cities. And it turned out that really, it was the return to city life that mattered. It was the vaccines, and then it was, you know, the nightlife and the cities and restaurants, yada, yada, yada. Like that is what moved the needle for rental demand to come back into those, you know, downtown settings. And so I, I, I think that's, you know, I'm, I'm in the camp that says that's a permanent shift to a large degree. A permanent shift meaning shift to what? Meaning like more and more people working from home longer term. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, and, 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 and so living wherever they want to live. Right. But but in your in your observation and in your data, you're seeing like we had initial sort of outflow of city, but you'd say yeah. that that's no longer true. Like we don't have we don't have city outflow or we have we have maybe moving back into city in terms of rental demand. Do you see that? In, yeah, you see that? yeah. No, one of the, you know, the kind of thing I think one of the great kind of untold stories of of the housing migration shifts that occurred in COVID was that. You know, initially, as you recall, the big story was everyone's moving out of the big cities, moving out of downtown. They're going to the suburbs and going to the Sunbelt and they're going to beach markets and mountain towns. You know, it's Boise and it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, the, the beaches and all this kind of stuff. And what was interesting in when you look back at the, the, you know, this whole time period is that demand came back to the cities in 2021 and end of 2022 but not at the expense of these other markets, you know, the Sunbelt and the suburbs. And so, so that demand did return. And so my, well, the way I think about it is that people who moved out of the big cities were probably going to move anyway, and they accelerated that move. Others came back. But the bigger factor was, I'm going to give you an example. If you live in Manhattan, you know, Manhattan's a market where it, it thrives off that inbound train of young, highly paid education, highly educated adults who want to live in that, that city and that lifestyle. Well, that train got shut down for a year. That was a bigger factor than all the move outs that occurred. And so when that train reopened again, he'll come back into the city, you know, it, it filled up again. And so, and so I, I think that's kind of, I, I think, I, I think we're that where you're working home or work from the office, you know, people, it's really about where do you want to live? That's going to yeah. impact this. And I don't think it's one versus the other. I mean, you're seeing, you're seeing demand for all types of locations. That's, that's really fascinating. I look, I watch the people that, you know, move up friends that I know that moved out of San Francisco and it's like, you want to move, you know, it, it's like, they want to move to a, a more affordable place. So they go to Manhattan or LA from San Francisco, but they still want to be in the city, you know? So like, that's how they're finding their, their affordable, you know, change. They, but do, do they, so do you have in your data, can you see migration trends? 
Yeah, we can see that to some degree. It's we're working to do a little better job of this, but we, I mean, it's more of a, you know, kind of a net demand movement as opposed to individual households that we track. And yeah, so we can certainly see that. The, the the one I'm thinking about is that we, you know, we called them the Zoom towns, yeah. you know, the that were like Boise, Idaho, the Utah markets that that had a lot of or or on, on the, you know, on the East Coast, it was like the some of the Florida markets where you had, yeah. you know, you have your your destination migration from, you know, California to to Boise. And it was like, I'll buy whatever. It doesn't matter. I'll just buy it sight unseen. And, and my guess is that probably also as we were talking, because the rental and the purchase actually move in tandem, my guess is that migration followed with with rental as well. And some people moved from San Francisco to Boise and rented there. It did and probably overpaid for their rent there too, because it was super. <laughs> and then, so then do you, can you see like, like, can we look like, currently and say, wow, we can actually see Boise's, the migration to Boise slowing, slowing down. Boise in the for sale side is the yeah. one that's actually slow, gone from the fastest to the slowest. It's it's had the, the it's got the most price reductions right now. It has a, a biggest percentage change in inventory. Like Boise is, is like the poster child of that change right now for us. Yeah. Can you see that in, in the rental demand data? Yeah. No, it, it is showing up a handful of markets and it's much more of the on the, the west half of the country than the eastern side. So, for example, like Phoenix, especially, has been the poster child in the rental market, um, significantly slow demand and group places like Boise as well. But on a much larger scale, you know, we've seen really weak demand in Phoenix this Phoenix. year. Um, Phoenix is number two on, on my little list of that way. So, yeah. 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 And then but, you know, I'll give you like, another side like Florida, at least to this point. It's 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 no longer you know just ridiculously hot, but it's still doing really well. And so for for now at least, it seems to be holding up better than Phoenix and, and Vegas and interesting, okay, Boise and whatnot. But um, I, I I do expect the Florida markets to cool off here at some point too. To continue to, to keep going down the and and Phoenix is fascinating. So it's like I call some of these like high beta, like a like a high beta stock that moves more than the market yeah. on the up and, and more than the market on the way down. And so like Phoenix is a classic high beta housing market. Yes. And and the the question is then like when do we see it? When do we see that demand bottom and turn around? Do you have insights about when things like that might happen? Well, I, I honestly, I think we're a ways from that, unfortunately, because I think we're just starting to see it, you know, but I think what's interesting about a Phoenix, especially is that I, a lot of investors really thought Phoenix had matured past that after the great financial crisis. And, you know, I, I talked to some of my colleagues throughout the industry who give you really detailed reasons why that was the case. And, you know, and, and we see this, you know, in the, in the apartment market, you know, uh, and you look at trades or at cap rates, you know, and the apartment buildings in Phoenix were trading at cap rates the same as, as Dallas and Denver, which, which you know, struck me as a little bit concerning even at the time, although I certainly didn't have Phoenix dropping as quickly as it did. But, you know, Phoenix just is not, I mean, I, to your point, it is a high beta market. It's reminded us of that fact. And I kind of doubted it for a minute, but it's there. It's, it's, it is a high beta market. Yes. And, you know, I, 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 my hope is that we start to you know, I guess my best case scenario for Phoenix and the rest of the country here, because it'll follow, is 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 that is is that you know the the consumers ultimately realize, like they did in summer of 2020, 
that they still have money, the job market's still good, unemployment is still low, and they start to behave normally again. But I think right now there's kind of a, you know, kind of a freezing effect that we see having a good a good deal of impact on housing demand and in, in in Phoenix. Yeah, for sure, a lot of a lot of fear about what what happens next. So let's switch gears and talk about inflation, housing, and rents rents in particular have been are, are a big chunk of the CPI, the, the headline inflation number that we hear. Uh, inflation's up super high, rents have been super high. There's some data, some evidence that says we still have, even though rents have probably topped off or they're at least back to seasonal normal, there's still evidence that, that the, the inflation numbers haven't yet captured all of the rental increases that have already happened. Yeah. What's your view on inflation and and rental and what what do we need to know there? Yeah, no, I think it's important to separate this topic into two questions. One is actual rent inflation and the other is what does CPI actually show, right? And and a lot of you know Mike, I know you know this, but a lot of people don't realize is that you know, that rent really comprises about a third of CPI because they're using the same rent survey they use to track rentals. That's that's actually used as the as the leading input for the owner's equivalent rent metric as well. And so it's supposed to be a proxy for the homeownership cost. So, you know, it, it is a big deal. And the problem, though, is that it's a, it's attempting to measure the contractual rent. I mean, rent's not like buying a, a loaf of bread. Your your rent changes around once a year or so. And so when you look at the contracted rent, it, it's a lagging figure where you really want to see a change. And by the way, I even as a rental housing guy, I think it's important to see some moderation here. And we have, you're going to impact that on the new lease rents, what people are signing for right now. And so that's already been moderating for quite a while. And the 2022 increases are much less than 2021. And But the problem is, it's just not, because of the way CPI is calculated and how it looks at rent, we're just not going to see it until sometime in 20, first, you know, first or early second quarter of 2023. Yeah. And so we're probably like, it'll be really fascinating. Like those of us watching the rental data will have seen, you know, rents moderating or even falling in that time. And meanwhile, every month they're going to be reporting the CPI climbing for, there's still a lot to get through there. Yeah. And, and just real quick, I'll tell you, like, I've gotten calls from reporters who are asking like, Hey, like, tell us about these big rent numbers. It was the largest rent increase since 1991 or month or a month. And I was, and I'd be like, well, not, not exactly. And, and so why are rents still got as much? Like, well, like, it's just, it's, it's, it's a complicated story, but where it's, but the reality again, is that, is that we've already, we're past the peak. We're, we're, what's happening now is what we wanted to see, what the Fed wants to see, but it's just not going to show up in CPI for a while. For a while. Yeah. And, and it's really, it's nerve wracking, right? Because, you know, we have to, we have to wait and get through all the, the reporting lag before we actually see the, the, that inflation, like the policy start to change, right? Yes. Do you have, do you have then forecast for, like rent appreciation for 2023. Do you do forecasts like that? Oh yeah, yeah. No, we're 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 we, we forecast every quarter. We're wrapping up third quarter now, and so then we'll be forecasting, updating our forecast in the next couple of weeks. But you know, we we still think we'll see you know relatively 
you know, sizable rent growth, but again, at much more normal levels, you know, I think we're going to end up somewhere in the, in the mid single digits, okay. which again is much more typical than seeing 10 to 15% for uh, by the time we get through next year. Yeah, yeah, 10 to 15% is nuts, but the mid single digits is actually still pretty significant. Yeah. Do you have a sense of if if recession kicks, when do rents adjust? Is that quickly or is that slowly? Yeah, I, no, they, they'll, they'll adjust quickly, but I think, you know, the bulk of leases are really signed, as I mentioned earlier, in Q2 and Q3. And so I don't think we're really going to see the impact until then. Now, if we do hit a real recession and it lasts into the spring, then obviously I would throw the forecast out the window. Like, I think we're we're still maintaining, you know, a more moderate growth continued view, softer landings, so it's you know, kind of current speak. But yes, if we hit a real recession, obviously that would that would change the outlook for sure. It's funny how intensely people respond to using the phrase soft landing. People yeah. <laughs> yes. they react very, very strongly to that. So okay, so that's great. So so you're seeing, assuming we have you know, a moderating economy, you see rent growth for the year. And that's really a, you can see that because of supply and, and demographic demand. And what other kind of things do you like to look at for your, for your uh, forecasting? Well, you know, when we look at forecasting specific to markets, we try to look at what are the best kind of predictors of, of, of rent and demand. And so, it, you know, it's it's things you expect: jobs, migration patterns, in migration, population of young adults in particular, but also things like retail sales are a great indicator as well of particularly rent growth. So, you know, in retail sales, by the way, I mean, that's obviously been a good indicator of late as well as people are still spending money for the most part, although it seems to be moderating to some degree. So. Yeah, those are the those are the main things to look at. But part of it too is that well, there there is a lot of supply next year. I mean, apart we're going to add more apartments in 2023 than we did in any year in, in since the mid 80s. And uh, but the thing is that you know what that makes it a little bit kind of a changes the outlook a little bit is that the vast vast majority of this supply is what we would call Class A plus apartments. You know, you're as you know, it's like these are the highest end, most expensive units catering to the wealthiest renters. And the price point on these new rentals, and this is, you know, cost of construction, cost of land, uh, regulatory fees, all of these things drive up the cost of, of the construction project and therefore require a higher rent. You know, that those those costs have gotten so high that the gap between a brand new property and your kind of average, we call it class B apartment, could be 30 to 40 to 50 percent. And so... So the thing that makes us unique is we're really not competing with the new supply isn't really competing with the bulk of the existing supply. And so I do think we'll see greater challenges in terms of like short-term lease-up challenges in these top tier properties. But I think that your kind of your typical existing 10 plus year old apartment community will has enough cushion there to continue to see a lot of demand and you know a little bit of rent growth. That's interesting. So the supply is coming at the ultra high end. So at what point do I, as a renter, who let's say is, you know, maybe it lives in, in a city like San Francisco <laughs> and, and like, at what point do you get, does, does a builder of those, like the high end apartments, 
at what point do they start panicking and go, we got to lease this thing up, even if it's way low? Like, when do you, when do the bargains come to the new, to the renters at the high end? When do people like the professional class in San Francisco, who maybe has been like, oh, I'll work from home, I'll scatter around the country. And now do they come back and go, wow, it's, it's actually really cheap to rent in San Francisco now. How, yeah. how soon does that come through? Yeah. So, so, and in, in these apartments, you know, like the term they use is concessions and you're going to see some, some pretty deep leasing concessions You see like, you know, one or two month free, and it's really just amortized throughout the term of the lease, but it's, you know, you're going to see a lot of that, particularly in the second half of 2023. And so if you, if you want to live in a luxury high-end newer apartment building, I do think by the second half of next year, you're going to see a lot of good deals rel- relatively speaking. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, right, 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 right. And it's it'll be fascinating, you know, in a in a in a higher interest rate market, it might, you know, those payments start to to balance out a little bit more. They've been they've been so in favor of purchasing in the past few years that it's really that might change. But listen, Jay, we're getting to the top of the hour. A couple of things I want to make sure that we do. Let's where do people find you and follow you on the socials and all yeah i'm at on, on twitter just at, at jay parsons my name you could also find me on linkedin as well i post a lot um, of content on linkedin also yeah you do some good linkedin work okay so that's jay parsons there and definitely follow jay if you're interested in those trends because there's excellent data coming there all right i think we should leave it there that's all the time we have for today again thank you for joining us on the top of mind podcast i'm mike simonson i'm the ceo of altos research at Altos, we track every home for sale in the country, all the pricing, all the supply and demand, all the, the metrics, and we make it available to you before you see it in the traditional channels. So if you've got to communicate about the market to your clients right now, because who doesn't, go to altosresearch.com, book time with our team, and check out the local data. Find our guest, Jay, on Twitter and LinkedIn, Jay Parsons, and we will have all those notes in in the show notes for the podcast as well. Jay, thank you so much for joining us today. Really informative. Like learned a lot. And I look forward to to let let's connect in January to yeah. see what the what 2023 is, is revealing for us. Sounds great. Well thanks Mike. I enjoyed it. Great conversation. Thanks so much, Jay. Thanks for listening to Top of Mind. See you again next time and be sure to click subscribe to get future episodes.